following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Let's open our Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to continue our journey through the book of 1 Timothy. And we've seen in this book already how the Apostle Paul has given us some directives to the church. Uh, this title of the sermon series is Life in the Church because that's what Paul is writing to Timothy about. And we saw in chapter 1 that he wants pastors and church members to refute false doctrine and teach the truth of Jesus as a centerpiece of all of life, as the one mediator between God and man. We saw in chapter 2... When the church gathers or the church is to pray gospel-centered prayers and gospel-advancing prayers and that we should see how the gender roles to function to reveal the glory of how the Trinity functions, God the Father, God the Son, Holy Spirit. We saw in chapter 3 that God has ordained his church to be led and cared for by qualified men. And we ended chapter 4 last week talking about pastors who are to watch their lives and to watch what they teach And church members are to watch their lives and to watch what they're being taught. And so today we jump into chapter 5, and we're going to see, as Paul begins to talk about how we're to care for one another in the church. Um, And you're going to notice this week we're going to talk about how to care for those in need. Next week we're going to talk about how to care for pastors. And again, these are instructions that Paul has given us to the church. Now, Let's be honest, chapter 5, as we start chapter 5, comes at a really interesting time in the life and culture that we live in. Uh, right now, and I'm sure maybe many of you ask the question a lot, like how how do we help people that are in need? Right, I mean, I drove in this morning, uh, parked in my usual parking spot on the far end of the parking lot to see um, a homeless guy in a car on just unloading trash and trying to fill up his car back again. And I'm sitting there thinking, how do we help? How do we help? It's a great, it's a, it's a debated, a debated issue right now in the town that you're living in. How do we help the homeless? How do we deal with all the issues that are around us? And one of the things you're going to notice this morning is how practical this text that we're in from God is for how the church is to help her people. You see, very practical. But you're also going to see something about it as well. It's very unpopular. And the reason why it's unpopular is because in the church, there is not the same dealing with everybody that we deal with equally. You're going to notice that we deal with each other and we deal with different genders and different generations, different ways, and we're to deal with different people in the church and we're to deal with people out of the church differently. And you're going to notice, again, this is for instructions for in the church. So here's here's the big idea. If you're new with us, you should have got an outline. There's a big idea that we usually give at the top of every sermon. And here's the idea that I hope we're going to see here this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 5. God has called the church to care for those in need in the church. And he has called for those who receive from the church to serve the church. It's very interesting, isn't it, how different that looks from, say, the social welfare that we see in our current culture. 
You receive something from someone with no expectation of service at the other side. It's simply to receive, to receive, to receive with no sense of anything else. And you'll also notice the the, pre, the preposition in the church. That seems to matter to God, and you're going to see why as we read the text. So let's stand together. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. We stand to read God's word here because we believe it's God's word. It is inspired. It's God breathed. And we are to submit ourselves to what God says. And so this is the reading of God's word from the Apostle Paul to young Pastor Timothy in Ephesus. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. For if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the husband of the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows when their passions draw them away from Christ. They desire to marry and so incur condemnation for abandoning their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should, what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after, strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for really challenging words in the Bible. But I pray this morning that you would open our eyes that these challenging words are very practical and, and help us to see Jesus in these pages and help us to see as well your heart for your people and how your people need to have a heart for your people. And we thank you. Open our eyes to the wonder of what your word says, and, and as well, Lord, to how counter this is to the rest of the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Now, again, put that big idea back up on the screen for me there. You'll notice, again, as you read the text, God has called the church to care for those in need in the church. And he has called those who receive from the church to serve the church. Now these words from Paul, what makes this a little challenging is some of the differences in our world from the world that Paul wrote these words to, to Timothy. In our world, we have long-term care facilities. We have insurance. We have retirement planning. We have wills. We have estates. 
Generally, there's some sort of financial plan in place for those who've lost a spouse. But, however, with the rising cost of health care, because, you know, the Affordable Health Care Act made health care affordable, the shortage of really good places for our parents to live late in their lives, it's safe for them and they're really cared for. And sometimes, if we're honest as well, the, the way our, 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 our world through distance is so easily to be maneuvered. I mean, I, I live 1,900 miles away from my mother. Makes the text like this remarkably challenging when you read it. But in Timothy's world, there's also something else that you have to know is that widows many times in that culture were shunned after their spouse died. And the reason for that is what John Stott said. I think he's correct in this, that in their culture, a married woman was identified only by the relation to her husband. So if he died, she not only lost her spouse, but she lost her social significance as well. And with that went the support that went with it. So you can imagine in Timothy's small little church, if there's widows in the church, there's a wrestling match over what do do we do here? But I would suggest that even though there's some cultural differences, I think we're going to find that there are biblical principles that apply really to both cultures. And I think we're going to see those this morning. And one of the first ones you're going to notice is the point number one in your outline, which is the church as a family. You'll see this in verses one and two, when Paul told Timothy how he should treat other people in his congregation. And you're going to notice these, these phrases and these words indicate there's family involved. Timothy seemed to be dealing with a, a very interesting issue in his church that being a young man, it seemed according to verse 12 in chapter 4 that, that people were looking down on Timothy or they were, they were disrespecting him because of his age. Very possibly older men and women were disrespecting him because he was younger than them. And younger men and women were, might have been treating him like a peer and disappointed that he wasn't elevating them to certain places in the church. I can tell you as a young man in ministry in my younger years, these were issues I had to deal with in my own heart regularly. Older people not listening, not paying attention to God's word because I was young. And my own peers being disappointed because I would not elevate them to certain spots or places because I saw older men needing to be in those places. There seems to be a generational struggle in Timothy's church, and Paul is addressing that issue. Yet you're going to notice something in verses 1 and 2. Paul instructed young Timothy on how to treat people from every generation. He's to treat them like family. And so in order to treat each other like family, we've got to ask some questions like, why are we to do this? And secondly, how can we do this? Right? How, why are we to treat one another like family? And how can we treat one another like family? Well, the question of why is pretty simple. It's we're to treat like fam- each other like family because according to the Bible, we are. Literally, we are children of God and we have the same father. Now, what's fascinating is everybody in the world can claim the same thing. Everybody has derived their existence from God regardless of what a science book may say to our children. Everyone has derived their breath. According to Acts chapter 17, we, it's in him that we live, we move, and we have our being. But what makes us in the church, the family of God, is the fact that we have the same Redeemer, the same Savior, and we're bought with the same blood. 
We are God's beloved children. We're bought with a price. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. We have the Spirit of God residing within us, reminding us regularly that we're children of God. So we should treat each other as family because we are family. But just because we are family doesn't mean that we do. So the question is, how can we treat one another like family? And the only way it's possible for us to treat one another like family is because of the power of Christ at work within us. Because of Christ, we can deal with our prejudices between generations. Listen, we can deal with the idea that younger men might think that older men only have get-off-my-lawn signs in their yard. And we can deal with the prejudices that older men think all younger men are disrespectful and they just want to push their own agenda. We can deal with the fact that older women might think that younger women are always immature and gossipy. And we can deal with the, the prejudices that, that younger women might think that older women are just prudes. We can deal with all of those issues. We can deal with all of our grievances. We can deal with our struggles because we have the power of Christ at work within us. Now just for a moment, consider young Timothy, who this was written to. What is the tendency of every young man who is disrespected by an older man? Well, I can tell you what my tendencies were. Who are you? Why would you? What? You, stop. It's to disrespect back. What is all of our tendencies when we're disrespected or treated poorly by anybody? It's to disrespect them. It's to write them off. It's to remove them from our lives. And the only way that Timothy or any of us can treat one another like family in the church is to remember the same power of Christ that saved me saved you. And the same power of Christ that's in me is in you to give us the power to live like family. We cannot do what Paul is asking us to do without grace. We can't do it without the power of Christ. This is why in the church there is a necessity of keeping Jesus Christ center in the church. If our community that we have here is based on anything other than the centrality of Jesus, it will eventually fail. It will. It will come apart at the seams. We will not treat each other like family. We will, we will lose our cohesion and our unity. Only Jesus can transform us to live the way Paul is instructing us to live. Only Jesus is the reason for this. See, it's in Christ that we can treat each other like family with loving respect. See, it's in Christ that we have the ability that when an older man wants to talk with me as a younger man, that I can look at him with respect and treat him with kindness because he's been bought with the precious blood of Christ and vice versa. And you're going to notice how Paul put it in the text. It's very fascinating. He wrote to Timothy, was not to rebuke an older man, but to encourage him as a father. What's intriguing is the word rebuke here that Paul uses is not the word for admonish. It's not the word for exhort. It's rather a word that means to up, upbraid or to rake over the coals. It's a disrespectful term. Now, some older men have read this text and said, because you are a younger man, you cannot admonish me. 
My response to that was, that's not what the Bible is saying here. Paul is not telling Timothy to let sin go unchecked and leave people unaccountable. Rather, what he's saying is, do not treat disrespectfully older men, but treat them like fathers. Respect them like a dad. Now, what's also fascinating is that word rebuke is connected to every other generation. You'll notice it's separated by commas, not periods. That's important because you could say it this way. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father. Do not rebuke a younger man, but encourage him like a brother. Do not rebuke an older woman, but encourage her like a mother. Do not rebuke a younger one, but in, but encourage her like a sister. So what Paul is doing here is in contrast to rebuking or or disrespecting back, Timothy should treat people from every generation with loving respect. Because in the church, we claim the same Savior. Treat them as you would family, those whom you love. And just think about how you treat your family. You give your family a lot of grace, don't you? You easily forgive your family. When somebody harms you, you work hard to make amends to that because you know you're going to see them at the birthday party. Right? I mean, that's what we do as family. Now, there are a few things about this I think we can learn that are really important. Notice the respect. Older men are treated like fathers. Older women like mothers. Younger men like brothers. Younger women like sisters. You see the respect. It's, it's a delicate thing. It's, it's treated with such respect and care. There's respect for each generation, but notice each generation is treated differently, but respectfully. See, John Stott, I think, clarifies this when he says this. Leaders should not be insensitive and treat everybody alike. No, they must behave towards their elders with respect, affection, and gentleness, their own generation with equality, the opposite sex with self-control and purity, and all ages of both sexes with that love which binds together members of the same family. See, notice there's respectful accountability. Notice there's respect here. Paul is, again, not saying let sin go unchecked, not let people be unaccountable. Instead, he's saying have such loving affection and respect for one another, but each generation and gender is treated with respect, and yet they're held accountable with respect. And then notice the care. Timothy, care for these people. Care for your brothers and sisters. Care for your fathers and mothers who are in the church. Care because they are family members. They're they're members of God's family for whom Christ died. So you can see in the text, there's this different way we treat one another. Imagine if I treated older women in our church like they were my bros. Doesn't match. Or honestly, and this is this is true, is Imagine if I treated a younger woman of my age like my wife. That doesn't fit. We, we've got to treat people differently in the church based on gender, based on generation. Now, again, think how contrary that is to the rest of the world where you treat everybody the same. That cannot happen to have a healthy society. So in the church, we treat people differently with loving Respect. Now, this is so important as we move forward, because when we treat the church like family, then we'll see what happens next as we help those in need. And you're going to see this in our second point, 
which is verses 3 through 8 about helping those in need in the church. As Paul discusses the care of widows. Now, I would, I would say this too. I think you can take the care of widows, and in parentheses you can say, and the care of those who are truly in need. Okay, I think we could say that. I don't think that would diminish the biblical truth that Paul is discussing here. But the care of widows in the Bible is a really big deal. God always looks after widows. And he wants his people to have the same heart for widows. Widows and orphans, for that matter, in the Bible were like indicators or like symbols or portraits or metaphors for people who were desperately in need, unable to fend for themselves, and the epitome of the needy. They were the ones that needed help the most. And as I mentioned earlier, in the ancient Near East, in the ancient East, widows were particularly helpless and desperate. And in some cultures, they were just completely not honored, not taken care of, and shunned. But God notices widows. God notices those who are truly in need. God cares for people and his people, and so should God's people. God values widows because they are made in the image of God. And when they are truly in need in the church, the church should rise to the occasion to care for them. Now you can see the burden in the New Testament on this in the book of Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, right as the church is growing, it's beginning to explode, so was the need. And you'll notice that there were some, some people, Greek people, that their widows weren't being taken care of. And they were complaining about it. Like, hey, there's people in our church and they're not being taken care of. So the apostles then decided, let's get some deacons involved and help with this ministry. The point is, caring for widows was a big deal to God. Therefore, it should be a big deal to God's people. So in the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, God gave us clear instructions about caring for widows. And again, we could say, those in need. Notice first, according to verse 5, that she must be a true widow. Now you go, what in the world is a true widow? I mean, isn't a widow one who their spouse died? That their husband died and they're left all alone? Well, the answer would be yes. But according to the Bible, there is some criteria to be a true widow. Again, let that rattle off in your brain right now when there's no criteria for getting help from anybody. It's just, I'm in need. Help me. Yet Paul is going to give us criteria. Verse 5 is very clear on the criteria. She's left all alone. She has her hope set on God. And she's faithful in prayer. Do you, do you see something fascinating here? This isn't just give help to anyone. This is give help to those who have criteria. They fit a certain mold, if you will, a certain Person. In other words, this is a woman who shows signs of a unique Christian life. She's driven by Christ's purposes and she's in true need. She's got no family to care for her and she's known to the church. How would they know if she's praying if she's not known in the church? And according to verse 6, she's not a woman who's self-indulgent. And according to verse 11, she's not driven by her own passions. Paul makes it very clear that there's criteria. But then he does something else. He makes it very clear 
that the people who are related to the widow are the ones who should be the first ones to support her. See, this is also fascinating. We see this very clearly from the text. If there's a family, the family should help her. And we're given three reasons for it in the text. Verse 4 gives us two reasons. The first one is to make some return to our parents. He goes, what does that mean to pay them back? No, it doesn't mean to pay them back. Give that a shot, right? I mean, you know, we'll jokingly tell our kids if they're paying us back for something, I'll say, let me just uh, deduct that from your bill. I mean, since you were born, before you were born, we've been accumulating your debt, right? That We can't pay that back, but rather what Paul is indicating is this is one way that we show honor and respect for our parents. I hope you're aware of that, the top ten commandment of honor your father and mother. There's no statute of limitations on that. When you left your parents' home, it doesn't mean you start dishonoring them. Honor simply means to hold in high regard, to respect, to protect, to care for. And so therefore, this to give some return to our parents is we are doing this for one reason, to show we honor them, we respect them, we care for them. But there's another reason in the text, it says, that it pleases God. It would make sense, wouldn't it, that if we obey the commandment, honor your father and mother, that would please God, right? And all Paul is saying is when we honor our parents by caring for them this way, we, when they need it, it pleases God. But notice another motivation in verse 16. He says that the church may not be burdened. Now, this is very interesting. I had a pastor friend years ago. We were visiting over lunch, and he'd had a rough decade, and, and the church was uh, declining. Uh, there was a lot of things going on in the church. I said, hey, man, what has happened that's been so hard? I mean, can you just talk through it? He said, let me just give you one example. He said, in the last eight years, I've done 80 funerals. 80 funerals. That's 10 a year. Now imagine the benevolence burden on the church if the church is left to care for those widows. Do you you see why verse 16 is important? If the families of those widows or widowers aren't willing to jump in to serve their widowed parents, churches will become overburdened by those particular needs. So the care for the widow must begin in the physical family. And listen, verse 8 ought to just be a verse that if you're a man in your life, if you're a man, you have a family, if you're a son, it ought to just like, I mean, it just, it just make you pause and stop dead in your tracks. Taking care of our families reveals something about our faith. If we're not willing or we're not doing that because we choose not to, it says we're worse than an unbeliever. That should just rattle something in our cages a little bit. Now, there's something out of this we got to draw out of. we got to draw some conclusions here and just apply some of these things. First notice, these are instructions for in the church and for those in true need. Okay, remember, verses 1 and 2 indicate we don't treat everybody the same. Again, contrast that with the federal government who just simply sends a check out to everybody. That's not what the church is to do. The church is to not just send a check out 
to somebody who just became a widow. That doesn't happen that way. And again, in, in our world, let's be honest, in church ministry, the idea of social justice has become gospel truth. So therefore, churches are asked to get involved in the homeless problem, the addiction problem, uh, the, sec- the, the sex trafficking problem. You can name the issue that churches are drawn to go get involved with. And the challenge with that is there becomes an enormous pressure on churches to move their ministries toward the outside world and forget what's happening in the church. So this is in the church type of stuff. In the church, the priority of care is for those in the church who are known in the church, who love Christ, and who show signs of loving and serving the church. Do you see how radically different that is? We're not just to give support to anybody who asks, nor to take on everybody's needs. We're to care for those who are in the church and who are willing to be part of the family. So here's an example of that. You can imagine our location, where we are, um, because of the bottle drop variety. There's a lot of homeless people that come in and out every week. It's one reason why we have our doors locked, not because we're afraid of you or anything weird. We just want to be able to see people when they come to the door, and we want to be able to then go out and talk to them about whatever is needed. Two to three times a week, it's, it's diminished a little bit over the last several times. People will come and say, could you pay my rent at the hotel? Could you, would you come and give me uh, some gas money? <clears throat> I'm on a trip to Seattle. I ran out of gas right by your church and all these kind of things. And our response to them is, listen, we would love to help, but our benevolence policy is this. If you would love to get part of our community, come hear the gospel preach on a regular basis and get to know who we are. Let us get to know you a little bit. We would love to fill up your gas. Love to help you. We'd love to help you get a job too, if we can. So if you're interested in that, 8.30, 10.30 is when we meet. We'd love to get to, I'd love to introduce you to my friends. You can imagine how many tanks of gas that we've filled up in the last six years. Zero. But if somebody in our congregation is in true need, we rise up to say, let's help as we can. Right? That That's what Paul is indicating here. Okay. The second thing I want you to learn from this is Paul is giving us there's a danger. And the danger is keeping people from getting true help. As I studied this week, I ran across this story from Ligon Duncan and it really it really stood out to me. It was really very interesting. Here's what he here's what he wrote. He says when Glenn Neck arrived in Columbia, South Carolina as pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Columbia, The church was involved in a downtown soup kitchen that ministered to the homeless people. Glenn had a heart for ministering to the needy, but he also had a person, he was also a person who wanted to be very practical and wise about the ministry to the needy. And so in the first few weeks that he was at the church, he made it his business to go down to the soup kitchen and interview all the homeless people who were making regular use of the soup kitchen. He asked questions about their lives and about their families and about what they did and about what they thought. And one of the things he found out that found out in that every in the in the case of almost every person who was taking part in the soup kitchen's ministry to the homeless was this the reason they were on the street stretched back to a break they had had with family members almost all of them had family members who could have taken them in but because of either their sin against their family or the family sin against them there had been a break in family relations and therefore they had fallen through the safety net 
Glenn then went to those managing the soup kitchen and said, do you realize by continuing to provide uniformly this ministry to these people, you are in fact, in many cases, keeping them from doing the very thing they need to do in order to get back on their feet. Now I want you to notice something. This is a church soup kitchen, not the federal government giving a paycheck. That is the pressure on churches to do all the time everywhere. Get involved widely, broadly, serve your community in this way. And I'm telling you, according to the Bible, the church had better have a policy on how you do benevolence. And the people in the church are to matter that because you can help them get true help. This passage from Paul helps guard us in our sympathetic hearts. Listen. I don't know a person in this room that's not sympathetic. The people of this congregation are remarkably compassionate. You're very much like I am. But this passage guards us from in our sympathy and in our compassion enabling people to stay in their sin or be separated from those who could really give them help. Now, again, I want to say this clearly. This is for in the church on how leaders are to direct their church on caring for widows and those in need in their church. As an individual, we're to be equipping you to go be good Samaritans. Does this make sense? But God didn't call the church to be good Samaritans in that way. He called you and us individuals to do that. So the church is helping you be equipped to do that while at the same time we are helping care for those that are truly in need in the church for accountability, for true help, so they can get back on their feet if necessary. See, now again, we've left the moorings of this so behind because we have a federal government that's helping people, you know, helping people. Everybody saw the quote, the air quotes, right? Right? Helping people. And the challenge with what we've had is the church has stepped out of truly helping her own people. And we've got to be really careful. This is in the church. Now, you can do as an individual like I I did recently. I had a gentleman approach me in the parking lot. Guy was clean cut, clean shaven. We had a great conversation about Jesus. I said, hey, what are you doing here? I saw you walk up, push your car up. He goes, oh, yeah, dude, my car's broke down. And, you know, this I was just helping a guy here. and It's in the shop and blah, blah, blah. And I just need a night to stay in a hotel. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. So I, you know, drive down to the quality inn. I, Tell him to meet me there, and I put my personal credit card out and pay for his little hotel room. And uh, next morning, get a call from the hotel to say, "Hey, uh, uh, the people that you helped." I said, "The people I helped. There was one guy." Yeah, the people you helped want to know if you're going to pay for another night. I said, "No, no, not. I was only, only paying for one night." And they said, "Oh, okay. Well, just so you're aware, we're going to clean the room. We'll call you back. Great. Call me back." And they say, "Um, just so you know, uh." A lot, lot of not good things happened in that room last night, and it's on your credit card. Oh, yeah, y'all got So you can go individually and be stupid like me, right? But listen, I can't let that be done in the church. Does everybody see the, everybody see the difference? Right? This is for in the church, how the church is to handle this. And what you're going to notice is in the church, church's guidance for this kind of ministry, we don't treat everybody the same. We don't. We see that very clearly. We make sure there's respectful accountability. So if somebody has a need and it's a true need, guess what should happen? 
they should be willing to disclose why they have a true need. Right here. Here's my here's my budget. Here's my finances. Here's where I'm at. I, I, this is why I think I need help. Right. And there's to be a true need. And, and there's no family there. They're left all alone. They're, 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 they're giving evidence that they love Jesus. Everybody see the difference? Right. This isn't just compassionate hearts going. We want to give everywhere. No, that's not what this is about. See, that's why the church has a benevolence fund. If you want to give to the benevolence fund, you can designate that on a gift and give to the benevolence fund. And we have a policy for how we will then distribute those needs in the particular church. This passage guards us from what my friend Bill Hurd calls unholy sympathy. (laughs) You know what unholy sympathy is, right? It's where we have compassion and care for the wrong person. And it also guards us from enabling them to stay in their sin and be unreconciled to where they might be able to get true help. Right? Now that's a good lead into the last point, which is receiving and serving. You're going to see this in verses 9 through 16. You're going to notice in verse 9 that Paul said to let a widow be enrolled. It's an interesting word he uses here. The word indicates there's a list that widows are on, and it seems to be <clears throat> a continuation about the care of widows. Now, this, this list, from what I can tell, is twofold. It's, and even in the text, you'll see this. One is, let widows be enrolled on the list who are cared for by the church. That would make sense in the context. Ones who have true need, left all alone, no family. They love Jesus, and they love his church. The other side of this was, let widows be enrolled on the list to serve the church in some capacity to assist the elders and the deacons in the ministry of the church. But again, notice there's criteria. And again, notice something interesting. It wasn't just receiving. These widows were willing to do what? Serve. Notice the criteria, verses 9 and 10. Not less than 60, a one-woman type, a one-man type of woman known for good works, loves kids, hospitable, and serve the church. Verses 11 through 13, not younger widows who might be drawn away by moral passions, who've abandoned their faith and and have too much time on their hands. Again, you notice, it's not just anybody, right? If you got these, these gals who are leaving the faith, you don't go support those widows, but ones who are committed to the faith, that are locked in with the church, that are known They're in true need. You support them. You put them on the list. And in verse 14 and 15, encourage younger widows to marry and raise a family if possible. Why? So the church won't be burdened. Now, what's Paul getting at here? The age of 60 is not a hard, fast number, right? I'm 52, so 60 is looking awfully young right now. Okay? I mean, I'm like, woo, man. I'm hoping I look good at 60, right? I mean, right? There's no hard, fast rule here. Because we certainly know people that are over 60 that have been widowed that remarry, right? In the, in this text and in this culture, 60 was considering the age that you went past remarrying, right? That's all it's indicating. It's just somebody's past remarrying age or stage in their life. But more at stake in the text is the spiritual maturity and Christ-like character of the widows that might be on the list to receive care or who could serve the church. Now, again, contrast this with the others that Paul lists in the text. 
Those who fled for immoral passions. There were some in the early church, in Ephesus in particular, they were widowed, they could not support themselves, and they began to sell themselves. And Paul says, we're not going to give to that. We can't support that. We've got to call them out of that. We've got to encourage them to be married so that they can raise families and not give in to their passions. Paul's concern was more about Christian character and, and spiritual maturity. He was concerned that, that immature younger widows might give themselves immorality or become gossipy busybodies. Now again, I want you to notice the type of person and widows that Paul's talking about. These are ladies who are committed to Christ, who are committed to serving their local church. Widows who are like that. And I would say this, people who are in need that are like that should receive intentional and purposeful care by their church. This could come in many forms. The community group gets involved. Friends in the church might play a role. But it's the elders and deacons' responsibility to make sure this is happening in the church. The care of a godly widow who's left all alone in true need is truly the church's job, right? And ladies who aren't like that aren't on the list. Now again, do you see how countercultural this is? Culture says they're in need, give it. The church says, we don't know you. You're not in true need. You're not left all alone. You're immoral. Sorry. Can't help you. We don't know you. You're not willing to serve. You don't love Jesus. You're not connected to this, to the people of God. See, Paul shows us something about this. It's, it's remarkable that receiving something from the church means you are willing and eager to serve the church. I love how practical Paul is about this. It's so practical. I mean, think about when we think about helping people, does the first thing that goes off in your mind, I wonder if they have a reputation for serving people. Hmm. I wonder if they have a reputation for being hardworking. I wonder if they're known for their love for other people. And how challenging is this in a world that says, don't hold anybody accountable? People who support, who the church supports, should be willing and eager to serve in some capacity in the church. They're going to be known. Now, this is a principle of the Christian life. I mean, you, you cannot look at the Christian life without seeing the principle. What we've received, we have received from Christ, therefore we serve Christ. I mean, it's a, it's a principle, not as a payback plan, because we can't do that, but because we're grateful. We're so humbled that he loves us and was willing to serve us. Right? There's no better text in the Bible than 1 John 3, 16 and 17. By this we know love that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for other brothers. And we think, yeah, absolutely, that's what we do. Lay down our lives for the brothers. We think, take a bullet, you know, get run through by a sword, you know, stand there and guard, protect people. But notice what he says. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? What, what John said was, laying down our lives for one another is when a brother has a need and we have the abundance, we give them what they need. That's laying down our lives. And in the American culture, 
writing a check or whatever sometimes for some is like laying down our lives. Now, what we see here is clear. God cares for his children and his children should care for God's children. We see that very clearly. This is life in the church. We lovingly respect one another. We willingly care for one another because we are family. We hold each other accountable. We, we don't treat everybody the same because we're not all the same gender or same generation. We give honor to whom honors due. We give financial support and are committed to serve those who are in true need and serve Christ and love the church. And we do it all because it pleases God. Since one of the things that you'll notice about this church, if you're here for very long, is this church loves to care for one another. When there is a need, our people rise up to care for that need. And many times it it goes unnoticed and people don't even talk about it. It's little things like a new baby being born, like Dylan James Saylor was born last night, which is awesome. And and the community group rallying around them to to get meals to them. It happens in subtle ways that if somebody has a a rent need, that our church rises up to rally around them and try to help with that need if they're truly in need. What you're going to notice, though, is if we get outside of the moorings of biblical truth, you're going to find the church doesn't function with that same type of unity. And think about how doing it this way declares the gospel. I was at our men's thing last night, and... Over a hundred guys read that thing, and I, I watched as older men interacted with younger men. And I stepped back and said, God, this is the gospel work. Last weekend we had over 140 ladies in this room and generations across the board being here together, and I said, I told my wife, I said, what a, what a cool thing that the gospel's at work. Right? When you see generations mixed together without fighting and bantering and separating, that's the gospel. Don't miss that. When you see people in community groups caring for one another, that's the gospel work. See, in the in the church world, they say, go make an impact in the world by meeting all the community needs everywhere and showing how powerful you are. Let me tell you how we do that at CLF. We make an impact by caring for our people really, really, really well over and over and over again and believe that will demonstrate and declare the gospel in ways we never thought possible. So that when people watch, they go, oh my word, look how these people love each other. Wasn't that what Jesus said? They will know you by your love for one another. Doesn't this look different than the rest of the world? God's people matter to God, and therefore they should matter to us. Let's pray. Father, I want to stop and just thank you first for the work that you've done in us. But I also say, help us to abound all the more in this work. With the potential of things happening in our economy, in our world, needs could arise all the more. So help us. Help us to be people that are faithful to your word, faithful to the principles you've given us in the church, and then help us as... 
Christian people individually in this world to respond to needs as you have led us and direct us? And Lord, we ask you that what goes on in the church would demonstrate and declare the power of the gospel. The way we treat each other like family. The way we respectfully care for one another. The way that we respectfully hold each other accountable. The way that we interact with one another. The way we care for each other. The way that we are willing to open our lives to one another. May that continue to display and demonstrate the gospel And for that, Lord, we, we are, we are totally dependent on your power at work in us. Help us to abound in the work of love more and more each day. For the glory of God, for the advancement of the gospel, and for the good of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.